Heavenly Father, we come to a deep and eternally meaningful portion of Scripture because it points us to what you have done, what you've accomplished in Christ, what you've provided for us through what you have accomplished through Christ. At the same time, it lifts up the greatness of his person and work, and it lifts up the wonder of the gift he has given to his people, the gift he achieved, the gift he accomplished, the gift he bestows on us, and the value it presents for us. And it's all about the hope that Jesus is, the hope that Jesus has provided. We live in a world so low on hope, so in need of hope, looking everywhere for hope, except for the one place where hope may be found. Now, we will look at that place today. Give us eyes to see. I pray for any who has come in not knowing Christ, that the Holy Spirit of God will be opening eyes and hearts to see, to see the wonder of who He is and how deeply we need Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most everything we'll look at today comes from the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews was written to people whose situation seems very different from our own situation. Uh, their background, for beginners, um, they were Jews by and large, and their people had en masse sheared away from Jesus and had concluded as a people that Jesus was not the Messiah, not to be believed, not to be trusted. But they, this small group of Jews, had professed faith in Jesus Christ. So now they find themselves in a culture where they have increasing pressure being put on them to return to what, listen, everybody knows is true. Everybody knows Jesus isn't the Messiah. Everybody knows that Jesus is not a sufficient hope. Everybody knows that Moses and the traditions of the fathers is the way to go. That was their culture. That pressure was increasingly being felt by these people, and they were being tempted to return. And with that temptation came the effects in their life that they were slowing down in their walk after Christ, and they were slacking off, they were becoming lazy, and their formerly bold and loud profession of faith was becoming increasingly muted. That's their situation. Boy, that's totally different from our situation, right? Totally different. We don't live in a culture that is sheared away from Jesus, right? We don't live in a culture uh, that knows absolutely that the hope we have in Christ is a false hope. We don't live in a culture that gives us increasing pressure to ease off on our confession of Christ, to slack off in our work, to, to sort of sand down the edges of what we believe and withdraw, become quieter, become more muted and dulled, slacking off, becoming lazy and distracted in our walk. We don't live in that sort of setting at all, do we? No, we live in pretty much the same sort of setting. And since our situation is so similar, we will want to hear very carefully what this writer says to them. What do you say to people who are in that situation? Well, what he wants to do basically is he wants to hold out the excellence of Jesus and more specifically, the hope that is to be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We just read it a moment ago, chapter 6, verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. What keeps you going in times that are difficult and trying? It's hope. If you don't have hope, you don't keep going. 
And we live in a, in a world that's short on hope, don't we? Well, I need to really correct that. There's a lot of hope in our society, but it's false hope. It's false hope. This points us to true hope based on Jesus Christ, who He is, and what He's done. We need this hope. Amen? We need this hope clear, sure, and in a firm grasp. So let's work at that together, looking at Roman numeral one, first of all, at the power of our hope. And he makes three assertions. I read you my translation of verse, uh, now back up to 17. In which way God, deciding to show the heirs of the promise the immutable nature of his decision, guaranteed with an oath in order that through two immutable matters in which it is impossible for God to lie, strong hope might we have who have fled for refuge to grasp the hope set before us. Which hope as an anchor have we for the soul, both unslipping and confirmed and entering into the inner compartment of the veil, where a forerunner on our behalf entered, Jesus, having become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek forever." So the power of this hope, he opens up for us in three assertions. First of all, it will not slip. Verse 19a, it will not slip. Which hope we have as an anchor, which hope as an anchor have we, this is a very literal translation I've made for you, which hope as an anchor have we for the soul both unslipping. Well, the image of the anchor, I think, is familiar to most of us. You're in a boat adrift on the, on the sea, so you let over a, a, a weight, usually with hooks on it, and you let it over the side, and you want it to go to the bottom, and you want it to catch hold of something so that you not drift, so that you not be blown everywhere the wind blows or carried everywhere that the tide carries you. It's the only way to stay firm and stable is by means of an anchor. Uh, when you're adrift. So why would a hope slip? He says this is a hope that is unslipping. Well, why would a hope slip? Well, if you drop your anchor and don't let it down deep enough, then it's not caught in anything, is it? So it will just, it may give you a little bit of weight, but it still is going to drift where you drift. Or I think of a lake in the Sierra, in the eastern Sierra, that has a lot of, uh, I don't know what kind of plant it is, we call it moss, but it's some sort of water plant all over the bottom, and you drop your anchor and it's just as likely to hit in that plant and just tear along with the plant, not particularly keep you uh, in place as the evening winds kick up, as it just tears plants along and doesn't really lodge on anything. Uh, You need something that will stay, you need something with purchase, something that will not move. So uh, John Owen, the great Puritan uh, Bible scholar in the 1600s, he wrote, groundless presumptions are the deceitful engines whereby the souls of multitudes are ruined every day. Of no more use than if the mariners should cast out a log or a burden of straw to stay their vessel in a storm. Suppose you tied a rope to a pencil and threw it over, over, overboard. What good would that do you? He says, none at all. But hope proceeding from and built on faith is infallible and will not deceive. And of course, that's where this writer is going to point us in Hebrews 6. So, slipping hopes like what? I went online, that repository of all wisdom today, uh, the interwebs, 
And I looked to see what hopes non-Christians cling to. And I, I tried not to be particularly selective. I just picked out a couple of themes that I saw. One was expressed by an Indian accountant, India Indian, not Native American, quote-unquote Indian, but an India Indian accountant. And listen, he said his, the reason why he has hope is because of the uncertainty of the future. Quote, hope that you're going to make it. Hope that you're going to fulfill your dream. Hope that the future might be uncertain, but it is in your hands. Now, my first question is, what does that even mean? (laughs) Why does that give you hope? But the other question is, what of any of that is true? Why does the uncertainty, what the uncertainty of future means is that you may not live to hear the end of this sentence. Oh, you did, but you didn't know it till it happened. That's the uncertain future. How do you have hope in that? And he says, hope that you're going to make it. Well, you know, um, not to be too gross, but Mount Everest is strewn with the corpses of people who had great faith in themselves, and they were sure they were going to make it. Didn't. But they had that kind of hope, and that was a slippery hope. It didn't serve them well. And he says that your future might be uncertain, but it is in your hands. Doesn't that, if you're a Bible reader, doesn't that take you right to the words of James? that your life is a vapor. You ought to say, if God wills, I'll live and do this and that. But his hope is that his future is in his hands. Well, the only thing that's certain, Hebrews 9.27 tells us, what's that? We're going to die and then be judged. But he doesn't factor that into his idea of hope. Another man named Hemanchu Desai says, his hope is the belief that love conquers all. Ah, isn't that sweet? What does that even mean? Love for what? Whose love? And when in all of human history did love conquer all? And you say, well, for a brief moment here and there, uh, but if it was for a brief moment, then I would say it didn't conquer all. But, but that's his hope, something that has never yet happened in human history. Now, why are these and all other such hopes so inadequate? Well, because basically we have a terrible track record. We have the inability to control ourselves and we have the inability to control our circumstances. Otherwise, we're set. But of course, that's the problem. We, we don't control ourselves fully. I think all of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we don't control our circumstances at all. Did I plan to get cancer? No. I'm going to say most people who get cancer didn't plan for that. Or horrible accidents or losing their job or losing family members, or all the things that happened to us as a species over which we had no control whatsoever. So that's why these hopes are inadequate. Scripture exposes the fragility and and inadequacy of human hope. Job's friend Bildad said perfectly truthfully, so are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish, whose confidence is fragile, and whose trust a spider's web. Oh, isn't that, a, isn't that a gripping image? Whose hope is a spider's web. Psalm 146, verse 4. Of the wicked, he says, His spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day, his plans perish. You never see a U-Haul behind a, a, a hearse. Uh, because that's the end of all of our plans. Uh, uh, Proverbs eleven seven: When a wicked man dies, his hope will perish and the expectation of vigorous men perishes. Yes, strong, vigorous, powerful men 
And they come to the point that all of us come to with 100% accuracy, death, and that's the end of everything from what we see on this side of it. So that is the kind of hope that slips. That's the kind of hope that men have. It's the kind of hope they live by somehow because they've convinced themselves there isn't another kind of hope. Oh, but there is, and we're reading about it right here. Why does our hope not slip? He says we have a hope that is unslipping. Why does it not slip? Because it has solid grounding. The hope of man slips because it has no grounding. Our hope does not slip because it has solid grounding. Letter A, it is not grounded in the mind of man, but in the word of God. It is not grounded in the mind of man, but in the word of God. Now, I remind you, though, there are large books of world religions that detail many, many religions. Fundamentally, there are only two religions. There's the kind of religion that bubbles up from within us and strives towards some sort of certainty and and absolute truth. And there's the kind of religion that comes down from God by revelation, where he parts the veil and speaks to us and tells us absolute truth, and we receive it. We don't intuit it. We don't find it. We don't concoct it. We receive it. Only two religions, and Christianity is absolutely the second kind of religion. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, the first two verses. God, having spoken long ago, well, I just pause right there. I mean, there is the whole premise of Christian faith. It's not something we figured out. We never would have. <laughs> never would have. But God spoke. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son. Well, there's the whole Bible in a brilliant sentence. The Old Testament and all the stories and all of the events and all of the laws, all of the symbolism of the Old Testament is God speaking in various portions and various manners, all leading up to what? The culmination of his speaking where? In Christ in his son, not merely a prophet, but his son, in his son. So the word of God is the origin of our hope. It's not something we've worked out. It's not something we've figured out. It's not something we've intuited or felt our way to. It is something based on what God has said to us, what he's held out by his word. And his word is powerful. It's like no other. How was the universe created? By the word of God. And how do we know the difference between right and wrong? By the word of God. Between truth and folly? By the word of God. It's God's word that is our starting place. And turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Here's the great thing that many don't get, including many who profess to be Christians. Listen, the word of God is our judge. We're not its judge. Amen? Listen. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It judges my thoughts and my musings. I don't judge it. Verse 13, there's going to be an accounting, but it's not going to be of God to me. 
There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. I must account to God. He doesn't account to me. And so the hope that I have as a Christian, I have from the Word of God. If my hope were based on the reasonings and philosophies of man, I'd have no reason to hope. It would be slippery. It would be nothing I could rely on, nothing I could trust myself to. But if it's from God, creator of all, knower and understander of all because he's the designer of all, if it's from him, then I've got something that cannot slip. I've got something that is outside of me, that is transcendent to human wisdom, that speaks from eternal, unchanging wisdom and speaks certainty to my chaos and my uncertainty. That's the Word of God, and that's the hope that I have based on the Word of God. So it is not grounded in the mind of man, but in the Word of God. In letter B, it's solid grounding because it is not grounded in the character of man, but in the person of God. Not grounded in the character of man, but in the person of God. So listen, think about it. Why do the words of men fail? Even well-intentioned men, but also ill-intentioned men, why do they fail? Well, they they fail because they are uh, men of weak character who perhaps make a promise, but they're not strong enough to keep it. They don't really intend to remember it. They don't give their effort to keep it. Uh, But even if they have strong character and really mean the promise, they're of weak ability because there are things we simply do not control. In fact, most things, (laughs) most things we don't control when you come to think about it, really. And so the word of man depends on the strength of man's character, which is not that strong. And it depends on his ability to control circumstances, which is pretty much nil. And so that's why a hope based on the mere men's of, uh, words of men or thoughts of men is a very weak, slippery hope. But God's words are the opposite. God's words are absolute. Why? Well, because God is absolute. And because the, the failings and weaknesses of men simply are not true of God. For one thing, God cannot lie. and He doesn't lie. He doesn't change and he cannot change. Many verses teach this. One is Numbers 23.19. I'll read to you. Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not establish it? So he's not of weak character as we are. He says and he means, he remembers and he does. So he can't lie or change. There's no weakness of character. And he does not and cannot fail. He has literally all power and all ability to to do anything and everything that it pleases him to do. Unlike any other being. He has all the power and ability to do everything that it pleases him to do. Scripture says and shows this often and often. Just a couple of verses. Psalm 115 verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. Kol asher chafetz asah. Everything he pleases, he does. The translation is, he does whatever he pleases, but I like the more literal. Everything he pleases, he does. The set of what God chooses to do is the set of what he does do. Daniel 4.35, 
Daniel 4.35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of earth. And no one can strike against his hand or say to him, What have you done? This is the frustrating God who cannot be frustrated and who never fails. So everything he says, everything God says, comes from a perfect character and infinite ability. God will never say, I did the best I could under the circumstances. Because God is over the circumstances. And God will never say, I would have liked to have done that, but it slipped my mind. Because nothing slips his mind. That's the hope we have in God. It is unslipping. Secondly, it is confirmed, letter B. It is unslipping and it is confirmed. Which hope as an anchor have we for the soul? Both unslipping and confirmed, he says. Well, all of man's hopes are the opposite. All of man's hopes are ephemeral. They're all short-lived. They're, they're shadows. They're, they're blades of grass bending in the wind. Uh, you know, we make fun of socialism. Uh, we non-socialists, socialists don't make fun of socialism, but we non-socialists make fun of it. And what's the thing we always ask? We ask, where has it ever worked? Well, couldn't you really ask that of just about anything that most men hold to? What about humanism? Where has humanism ever worked to bring in utopia? Or can-doism or American positive thinking? Where has this ever worked to bring in utopia to eliminate hatred and violence and crime and disease? Oh, it's improved this or that for a while, and then that's swept away by human corruption, isn't it? Now listen, obviously the point I'm about to make, it'll start off sounding political, but it's not, so just stay with me. Suppose you really liked President Barack Obama, you thought he was a great president. Then comes in President Donald Trump and does what? Sweeps away everything he did. Reverses his policies, puts in new policies, and what Obama did, it's gone. So let's suppose that you like President Trump very much. Great. What happens next? In comes President Joe Biden, sweeps away everything Donald Trump did, reverses his policies, puts in new policies or, or, or reinstitutes old policies. And my point obviously is not political. My point is about political hope. That if our hope is that, well, but the next guy's going to really be good, maybe, but then the guy after him will sweep it away again. Because these are just human efforts. They don't have the ability. And, and well, what do you say about the character of politicians <laughs> without laughing or crying or doing both at the same time? All of human hopes are a female, whether they're born of philosophy or politics or anything else. But the hope that God offers is eternal. And only the hope that God offers is eternal. It's confirmed, the writer says. How does he confirm it? Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, for instance. Now, the conceptual stress of the book of Hebrews is Jesus, and the corollary stress is the word that speaks of Jesus, that, that we need to cling to that word that shows Jesus to us. We see that in chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer... closer ah, how about if I start that again in English? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Well, doesn't that tie in with what we're looking at in chapter 6? What is it that's firm and doesn't move? What we've heard, the gospel. What might move us if we don't hang on to it? Which is his whole point. 
So we've got to pay closer attention to that word. Why? What's so great about that word? Oh, he's delighted you ask. Verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty, he's referring to the law of Moses, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation first spoken by the Lord, Jesus, was confirmed. Oh, there's the verb form of this same word in chapter 6. It was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So as we've been seeing in the Gospel of Matthew, and I trust you'll join us next Sunday as we return there, these signs and wonders that Jesus performed, they were all simply indicators that the kingdom of God was present in him. All the powers of the kingdom of God were personally present in him. And these miracles that he performed were signs pointing to that, confirming that his word was the word of God. Well, this is a word that indeed is confirmed. He confirms it by his mighty acts. He also confirms it, secondly, by his oath. Turn to chapter 6, the portion we just read. Let me lift it out a little bit, the meaning. uh, To strengthen our hope, he holds up the example of Abraham. When God made the promise to Abraham, so there's the first thing to note. He made a promise. Since he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. I'm tempted to preach a whole sermon just on that thought right there, but I will resist the temptation. But God made a promise to Abraham swearing by himself. What else could he swear by? What could could God swear by? Anything else he swore by was a created thing. The greatest thing he could swear by was himself. And so somebody says, well, you believe the Bible because it says it's the word of God. I need better proof than that. Well, better proof than God's word for it? I don't have it. What about archaeology and all that stuff? Oh, that's there. That all confirms the truth. But better proof than that God says his word is his word? I can't do that. I'm under that. I'm not over that. I'm going to come up and give you better word than God's character? Better proof than God's character? He swears his word is true. He swears his promise is true to Abraham, saying, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And Abraham received those promises. But look at verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation as an end of every dispute. You end the argument there with that kind of an oath. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. What are those two things? The promise of the God who cannot lie and swore by himself, and the oath that he took. The promise and the oath that confirms it. So given that God has made his promise, and he cannot lie, and that's sufficient all by itself, but for our sakes, he adds an oath. We have those two things. That gives us strong reason to lay hold of this hope that is laid before us because it is confirmed. It's confirmed by the mighty acts of God. It is confirmed by the promise and oath of God. Do you see? It is unslipping. It is confirmed. And let, me, let me just nuance that a little bit more. It alone is, is what I'm insisting on to you. This hope and this hope alone is unslipping and is confirmed. And thirdly, it enters within the veil. Verse 19b, letter C, it enters within the veil. 
Now, on the assumption that some of you are, are new to Christianity, let me try to explain briefly um, that in the Old Testament, there was a picture of what it's like to come into the presence of God in the tabernacle, for which very detailed instructions were given to Israel. And I'll try to make it just as simple as I can. There was a large building set off from everything else that was called the tabernacle, and that was the dwelling place of God. That depicted what it was like to have God with, with us. And you went up to the door. Beyond that, only the priest could go. But the first thing you saw was an altar where sacrifices were made, telling us that the first thing, if we want to approach God, is our sins need to be dealt with. With me so far? But if you were to enter, you would see within that structure a second structure itself broken into two compartments, of which the outer compartment is called the holy place, and the inner compartment is called the most holy or the holy of holies. And what's between those two compartments? A veil. That's what this picture is. This picture is that the hope we have. Now, let me add to you, uh, you don't know this. The only person who could go into that inner compartment is nobody, except for the high priest. And the only time he could go in is no time, except once a year on the Day of Atonement, besides the time it was set up when they moved. But otherwise, the Day of Atonement is the only day he could enter that compartment. But we, we who never would have gotten in, why would we never have gotten in? For starters, not the tribe of Levi, well, for starters, not the nation of Israel, (laughs) and then not the tribe of Levi, and then not a child of Aaron, and then not the high priest. So we never would have gotten in there. But he says we have a hope that goes in there and takes us in there, not into the symbolic presence of God, but the real presence of God, unslipping, confirmed, and entering into the inner compartment of the veil. So... This is something that's one of those things that's so deep. I have struggled and struggled to see how, how, how can I put this with sufficient power. And, and I've just accepted I'll fail and I'll do my best. God helping me. You see, I want you to see that this vivid expression, well, it is actually a third way that parts this hope from all human hopes. Well, what is true of all human hopes? Let's take the cult from which the Lord saved me, religious science. It's a way of thinking that started in earlier years by people with names like Phineas Quimby and Mary Morse Baker, Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, usually just call her Mary Baker Eddy, founder of Christian Science. Founder of my cult was Ernest Holmes. What did they all teach? And what, what was their whole life given to? Teaching that we're all one with God, that God lives in all of us. And in Mary Baker Eddy's case, that uh, disease and death, they're all illusions of mortal mind. That being one with God, that if we were just to harmonize our thinking with God and affirm truth. You don't pray, you just affirm truth that the death as an illusion would be passed away and all disease would be, would be gone and we would experience nothing but prosperity and wealth and happiness and joy. So let me ask you a, a real simple question. What happened to Mary Baker Eddy? Got sick and died. What happened to Ernest Holmes? He died. What happened to all the people who gave their lives to following their teaching? Well, they died. Why? They said such wonderful things. Obviously, they were compelling to people. Obviously, they filled people with hope. But what can you say about everything they said? They were just words. They were just words. And that's what you can say about any politician or any influencer or anybody on The View or any other show, any philosopher, any motivational speaker. 
unless they're hooked into what I'm telling you about today, everything they're saying is just words. And how far do they go? They don't go past the ceiling. But this, and this only, reaches into the veil, beyond the veil. Which is to say, you get onto this anchor, and you've got something that is not anchored in the mind of man, or human imagination, or musings, or intuitions. This actually is anchored in the presence of God. And you follow this rope out, and it's going to lead you into the very presence of God. It alone is rooted in actual reality. It alone has actual purchase in heaven. Everything else is just words. But those words make me feel so good. Well, then that breaks my heart. That's so sad because those words will fail you. And you will die and those words will do you nothing but damn you. Those words will not help you. One breath past the grave, let alone what they might do for you to the grave. Only God's word leads us to that kind of hope that leads us into the presence of God. It enters within the veil. So there's the power of the hope. Wouldn't you say that's a powerful hope? Isn't that a hope everyone should want to have? A hope that doesn't slip? A hope that is confirmed? And a hope that actually reaches beyond the veil into the very presence of God? Isn't that what everyone should want? Well, now let's see then, Roman numeral 2, the fact that this all hinges on the person of our hope, and that person is our forerunner. And here you'll see why this is an Easter sermon. It hinges on the person of our hope, our forerunner. Verse 20, where a forerunner, where, where is where? Inside the veil. Inside the veil, where a forerunner on our behalf entered. Jesus, having become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek forever. Now, before I even start in the outline, I want you to see something very powerful and very important. The same verb in verses 19 and 20. What verb is that? Look at the end of verse 20. Unslipping and confirmed and, where's that word? Entering into the inner compartment of the veil. Now, do better with me on verse 20. Where a forerunner on our behalf, what? Entered. So why is the hope I have entering the veil? Because Jesus entered the veil. The reason why I can have a hope that enters the veil is because I have Jesus who entered the veil. But, but look even more closely. What does he say? A forerunner, and what's the next word? On, on our behalf. He's a forerunner. He, on our behalf, he entered for God's elect. He entered for his people. So let's talk about him then. Letter A, his worth, the worth of this forerunner. Well, for one thing, go back to chapter 1. He is the climax of Revelation. Verse 1, one of the most magnificent beginnings of any book God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in the last days spoke to us in his Son. And we'll just pause there. So he's saying as magnificent as the Old Testament was, for all of its stories and songs and all of its laws and pictures, as magnificent as it was, it basically serves as a prelude and a pointer to who? To Jesus Christ, to the Son. 
He is the culmination of Revelation. He is the landing point of Revelation. He's the climax of Revelation himself. Secondly, he is the radiance of God's glory. Verse 3, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So he is the radiance of God's glory. That's his worth. He's the climax of revelation. He's the radiance of God's glory. And thirdly, he is himself eternal God. Look at verse 8, still chapter 1. But of the Son, and very literally, but to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And that's not a misreading or stuttering. The scripture calls Jesus God. Jesus is God, the Son. He is God. Look at verse 10. Again, addressing Jesus. You, Lord, at the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will wear out like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. He is eternal God. So what is the worth of this forerunner of ours? Well, he's the climax of Revelation. He's the radiance of God's glory, and he is himself God himself. Do you have higher worth than that? You do not. Secondly, let's talk about his work. And first, we we begin with his incarnation and redemption. As soon as you say that Easter is the most important holiday of the year, you're forced to think, yeah, but without Christmas, there'd be no Easter. (laughs) If God did not take on flesh, there wouldn't be a good Friday. And if there weren't a good Friday, there'd be no Easter. There'd be no resurrection. So in chapter 2, verse 14, look at what we read. Therefore, since the children, the children of God, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, the same what? Flesh and blood. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He wasn't sent to help angels, but verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, there, there's the whole thing in a brief uh, sentence that he had to be made like the brothers who he came to redeem because unless he were in their nature, he could not offer redemption in their nature. He could not offer a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, propitiation, were he not himself a human being. So he took on human flesh, that is the virgin conception and birth, that he might live the perfect life and that he might die and make atonement for his brothers and be a high priest who, who satisfies God's justice and wrath for their sins. Again, chapter 7, same idea, but look at verse 26 and following. Hebrews seven twenty-six and following. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, there's his character, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins. All those priests had to atone for their own sins because they were sinners, but not him. He wasn't a sinner. We just read what he was, holy, righteous, undefiled. So he did this when he offered up himself once for all. Verse 27. So 
he became a man that he might redeem his people. And a magnificent statement of this in chapter 10. So hard just to lift out a little, but I will. Chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. By this will, the will of God that Jesus came to fulfill, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. How did he do that? By offering his body. How did he offer his body? Because he became a human being at the incarnation. So, incarnation and redemption of this worthy one. Second aspect of his work, having been incarnate, having died for the sins of his people. Was that the end of the story? Sad story, but no, it wasn't. Look at the last chapter in the book, chapter 13, verse 20. 13, 20, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, in case you're in any doubt about who he's talking about, our Lord Jesus. God of peace brought him up from the dead. And there's what we mark today, his resurrection. This one who is God, this one who is the radiance of God, this one who is the climax of revelation, took on human nature that he might die for the sins of his people. And having died, God raised him from the dead. And that's not even the end of the story. And that's not even the end of why he gives us hope. The third is his ascension and present session. S-E-S-S is what goes in the blank. What do I mean by that? Well, let me just take it from Hebrews. Turn back to chapter 1 again. And we'll read the second half of the verse. Hebrews 1.3, second half of the verse. Who having accomplished cleansing for our sins. How did he do that? His death on the cross having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, obviously, before he did that, he was raised from the dead. And then he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, where is that? In San Antonio? No, that's up in the heavens. I don't know just where, but I know it's up. And I know it's away. And I know that's where Jesus is sitting now. Verse 13, same chapter. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet? That's the ascension. Rose from the dead and then he ascended from this planet up, up to the right hand of God to sit at his right hand. And what's the benefit to us of this? Turn to chapter 7. Why does this give us such hope? Chapter 7, verse 25 Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest exalted above the heavens. He was exalted above the heavens to the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? Making intercession for his elect that he might save us to the uttermost. Our salvation is a fruit of Christ interceding on behalf of his atoning sacrifice. He pleads his sacrifice for his people, and in answer to his pleas, we're saved and we're kept. 
and we're given this hope. And he does this because he rose from the, gray, from the dead and because he ascended to the right hand of the Father. A couple more verses make it even clearer. Chapter 8, verse 1. And now the main point in what is being said is that we have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. There it is again. This is a frequent theme of his. And where is that? That's within the veil. That's the very presence of God. That's where our forerunner has gone for us, the writer says. Turn to chapter 9. Look at verse 24. Speaking more of this entering behind the veil. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, like the one in Israel, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. And what are those wonderful words? For us. For us. Why do I have a hope that is unslipping and confirmed and that enters within the veil? Because my forerunner is entered within the veil. And there he appears for me and for us, for all of God's people. And so, again, um, chapter 10, verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So he offers a final sacrifice, a sufficient sacrifice for all the sins of all his people, rises from the dead, ascends to the right hand of God, and there he pleads that sacrifice for them before God. And so what is that to me? Well, what that is to me, and what that is to every Christian believer, whether he's been a believer for a minute or for a decade or for ten decades, what that is for us is that Jesus, our forerunner, came and fulfilled the law of God for us and on the cross satisfied the justice and wrath of God for us, was buried and was raised from the dead to show God's acceptance of that sacrifice. And having risen from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and there he pleads for us. And my hope is all on that. All my hope is on that and on the word of God that tells me about that. And that is a hope that won't slip because it's a hope God gives. It's confirmed by the character and the works of God. And it enters within the veil. It is a hope that is good and actual and real in the actual presence of God. It doesn't stop at the ceiling. It goes all the way. And you clinging to that hope and me clinging to that hope, we will be taken all the way. And we're free right now and welcome to enter the presence of God by prayer because we enter through Jesus, our mediator. But we have the hope that one day we'll begin an eternal day of living in the very presence of God because of this hope that we have in the gospel. You see, the resurrected Jesus Christ, risen from the grave, brings a hope that no human scheme can create and no human tongue can offer. We sang it just a bit ago. Let me read it again for you. Man's work faileth, Christ's availeth. He is all our righteousness. He, our Savior, has forever set us free from dire distress. Through his merit, we inherit light and peace and happiness. So the bottom line then is the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone grounds our hope. It's predicted by the promise of God who cannot lie, guaranteed by the oath of God, 
and the character of God. And we lay hold of this hope right here and now. This hope gets us through this valley of darkness right here and now. This hope motivates us to pursue hard and with all we've got after God right here and now. That's what this hope does for us because this is a hope that is certain and sure and reaches into the very presence of God. It's not just words. So Christian friend, through the risen Jesus Christ, this hope is yours. This is the hope that God crafted, promised, accomplished, and gave to you. This is your hope. The world has no such hope to offer. The world will die. This world will be shaken and replaced by the kingdom of God. And only the one who's born again will enter the kingdom of God because of this hope. This hope which rests on the risen Jesus Christ. And non-Christian friend, what I say to you is that God in his great grace has brought you in to hear about this hope. But this hope is not yours. But it's offered to you. Because you're called to come. You're invited to come. To look to Jesus. To turn away from your self-rule and your sins. And look to Jesus. Believe in him. Cry out to him to save you. Trust him to be your Lord and Savior. And then you know what will happen? God promises this hope will be yours. Because Christ will be yours. Come unto me, he says. And so I echo him in his name. And I say, come unto him. Come unto him. He alone gives a hope that doesn't slip, that is confirmed, and that actually takes us into the presence of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good word, this wondrous word, this wondrous Savior. Thank you for his great salvation. Thank you for his wondrous atonement, washing us from all our sins. Thank you for his glorious resurrection, that he lives forever stands before you pleading his sacrifice on our behalf, pleading for us, interceding for us, keeping us and saving us. We thank you for this great Savior and this great gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.